Hey there, it's me, Jade, and you're listening to On Their Way, the Titans of Tomorrow, today. Okay, so this is part two of our interview with Rashan Singh, one of the key figures behind Temujin and Andas Productions. Now, I don't know if you listened to part one, and even if you did, a week is a long time to remember things, which is why I'm going to do a quick little recap and however long this takes or less. So, cut the music. Put some time on the clock. And uh, maybe play some jaunty countdown music for fun, like something that could be played in a knockoff Miyazaki film. Do we have that? Yeah, that's great. So last week, Singapore native Rashan Singh hey! came in to talk about his hit show Temujin, an audio drama, and the company he co-founded, Andas Productions. He said Andas is supposed to be engaging, intimate, and on target in terms of our, our projects. And also that a large part of what we do, I think, is navigating where we stand as kind of English-speaking, English-content-consuming, like, young people living in Southeast Asia. He went on to talk about how he and his collaborators started Temujin and how the success of Temujin rolled into the creation of their production company. I asked him some questions about budgeting, how one can sell their story, and why he doesn't think commercial is a dirty word. Then one thing led to another, and I asked him about the upcoming Anda slate. He told me about one upcoming show that's... More, sort of like more in line with Temujin, uh, just in terms of its partially historical drama-esque. And that one is like a pre-colonial Singapore. And the other one is an adaptation which furthers Andaz's business model. And then Rashawn mentioned... 15 years from now, I know exactly what I would want to do to follow up Temujin, but I've told myself that we must, we must move on <laughs> and do other things before I allow myself and ourselves to finish that story. There was always meant to be a part two to it, but I think we have to get older to tell the story of people getting older. And I said, do you mind if I asked what part two was about? Wait a minute, no I didn't. So I, I got confused. That's actually how part two of this episode starts, which means you're about to hear that line for real in uh, three, two. Do you mind if I ask what part two was about? Of course. Um... Because I think I've mentioned it before without saying that it was part two explicitly. It's um, uh, it's supposed to be sort of juxtaposing the height of Mongolian global conquest with Temujin's failures as a father. It's a failed coming of age. Um, because we hint at the end of Temujin that he, he sort of he hasn't quite reconciled everything was junk, right? Like the, the sort of the pridefulness, the, I think specifically what it was, was his sense of idealism, I think. Um, the cynicism, the sense of like intimacy and love, like he's kind of haphazardly hardened himself. And I think that pays off in the history just by way of like, um, his sons start sort of behaving as dark echoes of his past behavior. To the point where, like, um, Temujin had this whole thing about, like, killing his older stepbrother because he felt like he was behaving tyrannically. Mm -hmm. And the, the tragedy, like, it's almost Greek in the telling of it, but, like, uh, his second-born son, who's, like, um, definitely the son of him and his uh, wife, Orte, starts casting doubt on the legitimacy of the first son, Jochi, who is born in, like, Act 4 of Temujin. Yeah. He's like, you're, you're not the first son, I'm the first son. You're just some guy. And Temujin basically started to see that, like, his sons are using the same language that he did. And he kind of, at that point, is this... He's sort of horrified at what he's become and resigned. And he's trying to temper all those things with 
being a father and realizing a little bit too late that he never quite got around to fixing all that stuff he said he was going to fix about cycles of violence. He mm-hmm. started this whole ass war <laughs> and he can't even stop his, his like little boys from fighting. And it, it all ends rather tragically. But I think the horror part of it is like, um, he basically sees the Mongol Empire fizzle out. And we know from writing at the time that like, he realized that the chain of succession would lead to a gradual dissolution and disappearance of the Mongol Empire. And in his lifetime, he realized that and he wrote about it. And uh, that's where our source material comes from, The Secret History of the Mongols, where he said that the only way that any of this moves forward is if his children's children learn what it means to be a good person from everything he did wrong. And yeah, basically, I think Timujin 2 would be like him realizing in his old age that he wasn't the good person that he wanted to be. And his life is ending, and like the, the spoiler is that like his oldest son dies under mysterious circumstances, and his propaganda machine starts out of control, proclaiming that he killed his own oldest son uh, to stop his own sons from fighting, and people start going like, "Yes, the fearsome and the great and the the Genghis Khan," and I think that's the moment that that breaks. And to, I think in our telling of it, it's like, that's the moment he's like, I need to tell the story. Or I need to figure out what this narrative is. Because there's there's no way out. Like, the war he starts raging is literary toward the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And it's a very quiet one. Even as, like, because yeah, he sees everything falling apart. Even as literally everything has never been better for anyone in the Empire. So we, we're still going to crack that one. But I think it's about old age. And we're too young to write that. Just, yeah. That sounds really, really um, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it will be great, but I think... Okay, so maybe this is interesting as well, because we're talking about a slate. I'm going to type back in. Um, oh. I'm going to try and type it back in. So, the reason we did, I think we can't do a Temujin 2 yet is because on us, we're trying to we're trying to have this mission statement that, like, um, we're here to sort of tell exactly the kind of stories that we've been talking about. But if we hyperfixate on Mongolian history, um, as much as I love these stories and we love these stories, I think the sort of cruel and unfortunate nature of perception is that we end up sort of becoming the Mongolian history people. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we when we when we present these stories to people, we want them to see them as the great and compelling stories that they are. And for that to happen, we need to sort of I think the way we conceptualize it is we need to show people that there is a breadth of storytelling um, of, of you know great and compelling and and moving stories that we can tell and then prove that there's a reason we keep coming back to the tender and like tragic story of Temujin. Um, that, that's kind of how we've, we've worked it out in our heads as well is that like um, we want to dazzle with diversity and broad broad stuff and also frankly like there's a whole conversation we can have about the rehearsal space and how like um when there's a severe gender imbalance in the rehearsal space, I think, like, so for instance, intelligent, most of our cast is male-identifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to check in with our non-male-identifying actors a bit, I think, because they, they mentioned it was hard. And it was a great team, and then everybody loved each other. Um, and we were doing, like, regular feedback, and 
this was thankfully during a time where there wasn't a uh, <laughs> raging global pandemic. <laughs> but yeah, even though these are all people who loved each other and, you know, like everybody got along great, it's still hard being like surrounded in that way. Mm-hmm. And as a producer and a director, I, I want the next couple to have not that problem or not, not that difficulty. Um, because ideally everybody's just like having as good a time as you can give them. Um, okay. Uh, so final one, uh, the game, which yes, <laughs> really quick. Um, the game is cool as hell. I'm really, <laughs> I'm so happy with this. I would say that like my first love when it comes to storytelling mediums is games. I just, I love game history. I love playing games. I love watching people play games, um, both online and in person. Like I grew up in the kind of house where like one person would take the controller, playing a single player game, and like everyone else would just watch, mm-hmm. just kind of like yell at the screen. I think in terms of games with storytelling, and I, I knew that like if Temujin did well, we should give it a step. And I think that's kind of where a lot of our dream, passion, idealism is coming from. And frankly, I think it's where like I spend eight or nine hours a day working on that, like for the past few months. And I work on the audio dramas in between like those hours. And the game, because I'm, uh, for the game, I am directing it. Mm-hmm. I'm currently uh, designing, I'm coding the prototype myself. So what we have then is we have an art team, sort of like by like the person who did the Temujin animatic trailer. And she's, she's phenomenal. She's really, really good. We have like a, a story team of like a bunch of writers that I really, really love from the Philippines and Singapore. And all of these people are buddies, and all of them love each other, and all of them are phenomenal in what they do. And I think what's happening is that we're all kind of having these weekly meetings where we try to align on, like, what exactly is this thing? What are the games like it that we want to make? And we sort of play the game in progress every single week. Right now we have, like, a room where the main character, who is playable, can do a combat scenario with melee and ranged enemies. And we have that working. There's kind of like a Smash Brothers meets Devil May Cry meets Hades. It's kind of the general feel of it. Okay. Where you have the roguelike structure of Hades, the depth of combat of a Devil May Cry, where you have juggles, you have options, you have stuff there. But it's as easy as Smash Brothers in that like there aren't that many inputs that you have to memorize. Yeah. So so we we have this whole thing where like we're trying to make a game that is story driven action. It's a game that funnily enough started as a spin-off to uh, the comic that I've been working on, which is The Art of Charlie Chung, mm-hmm. which is a comic about a fictional Singaporean artist who had tried to create great art throughout the decades. And uh, the comic's sort of joke is that it, it actually draws out a lot of these comics he would have made and goes really in-depth, newspaper clippings and like, you know, and all this is surrounded in like a biography of him that supposedly he drew of himself. And there's like many, many, many layers of it where there's like an investigator piecing together his life by combing through his biography and juxtaposing his comic work, trying to sort of get to the heart of the thing of like, this guy calls himself Singapore's greatest comics artist, but Singapore didn't have comic artists. (laughs) So what happened to him? Why did he fail? And how does he live with himself, basically? And the answer is, he's full of bravado. He never gave up, almost to a detriment. And it sort of asks the question of, like, is there a nobility in that? In, like, this stubborn creator who never gave up. Mm-hmm. 
and the hope in that is offset by like the existential kind of tragedy that that person didn't exist. There was no Singaporean who tried to do what this person did, and that that kind of balance of melancholy and hope, I think to me is like the most perfect thing that's encapsulated what it has felt like for the people on our team as well, trying to be like the first Singaporean to X to Y to Z, and kind of feeling like if it were if it were easy, someone would have done it, and for many of the stuff, nobody has, and that's scary as heck. But yeah, in this this comic, um, so one of the comics that is in this comic is called Roachman, and it's about a guy who gets bitten by a radioactive cockroach, and he realizes that he can climb up walls, and he decides to use his powers. So yeah, it's a whole thing of Spider-Man, um, and the joke in the comic is that the creator comes up with this, and like four months later, Marvel puts up the first issues of Spider-Man, <laughs> and he's like, damn it, <laughs> like he's like, and there's this beautiful page where at first he's like really like, oh no. And the co-creator is like, wait, but no, think about it. There's still stuff that we're like, just because the premise is the same doesn't mean that like it's the same exercise. Mm-hmm. Our guy is solving Singaporean issues and some Singaporean issues are like this, this, and this. And that's different. And the whole thing there is like, not to be fussed too much. Or like, don't, don't worry about it. Lean in to what makes your lived experiences different. So that sentiment, coupled with the real fun of like a noir kind of like a pulpy aesthetic in a colonial Singapore with this guy who's like a sort of like wondering why the government is setting buildings on fire. Oh, you know, the animals are being hunted, being um because they're getting hunted, they're being more aggressive and they're attacking people in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, and just stuff like that. And like I think what we're doing is we decided to lean into that genre. So we're doing a, a Roachman game. Ooh. Where the joke is we're pretending like this comic really existed. Um and we're we're quote unquote reviving it. It was called Classic as a 2D action side scroller where it's like the last day of his career where he is pulled out of retirement for one last day on the job. But a Groundhog Day shenanigan sort of ensues and he finds himself needing to gradually remind himself why he started doing any of this to begin with while sort of like forming these very intimate connections with the people he's cut himself away from in society as he grew older and more jaded. And it's meant to be this sort of sweet story about activism, about why fight when everything feels hopeless, which is, I think, also like our production company story at the moment, which is like, everything feels daunting and scary. And yeah, just, just sort of like finding the light and the humor and sort of the, the fun in it is something that we care a lot, a lot about deeply and we're trying to express through this game. And I think in different ways through the audio projects too. Yeah. Well, that game sounds extremely interesting. Uh, there's just, a, there's like a lot of stuff going on. I, I can't wait to see like how the art direction turns out and like how the actual gameplay turns out too. I think that'll be really exciting. Yeah. I, you know what? And we have the videos of that. Like it's, the great news is we've reached the stage where we have that locked. We're trying to talk to publishers. We're trying to, and this is the business side of it again, I guess we're like, um, we've been learning how the industry works and industry is always like about who will say yes to you right and like mm-hmm. um great thing about kickstarter is like nobody has to say yes to you or like the public has to say yes, say yes to, to you, you. the public yeah. yeah so over here i think we've got a, we've lined up a whole bunch of publishers and all of them are very strict and very professional and they're very high standards and you know so it's the sort of thing where like we're just working over the span of like a year to earn the right to work in it for three more years after that hmm. question so 
Is this something like you want to do more of in the future? Like creating video? Wait, no. Okay. Real question. So yeah. when, when creating more video games in the future, do you want to like, no, that's not how I want to phrase that either. Multimedia, <laughs> multimedia creation. Like for instance, when you were talking about like the video game, the video game you're making. Wait, actually, let me clarify something real quick. It, this, you said this video game is based off of uh, off the life of a comic of a comic artist who didn't actually exist. So, like, this is a comic that you personally came up with. Uh, so no, it's um. So this is where it gets a little tricky. This is a comic based on. Hmm, let me think about how to, how to phrase this. So there is a real comic called The Art of Charlie Chan of Chai. Mm-hmm. And that's also the one I happen to be in the anime, animated series Renaissance for. Got you. And that's written by this guy named um, Sonny Liu. And uh, the way this part works is that we... Um, I wonder how much of this I can or should be talking about. I think that's it's a fair fine. question. Protect yourself. My gut is telling me it should be fine. Okay. If only because uh, we, like, we've talked to the creator. We've talked to the comic creator already. He knows that we're doing this. He's given his blessings on the Enterprise. Uh, heading back to the question. Uh, so his comic includes snippets of a fake comic called Virtual. And that fake comic, uh, we're building off of sort of like um, what it implies this Spider-Man-like character is up to, this like Singaporean colonial vigilante is up to. And we're trying to build on that and try to say like, no, there's a real war, there's a real universe here. And we're sort of playing this volley back and forth with the comic, where every time we feel like we're running off and we're we're doing our own thing, we're like, wait, he actually did a lot more in this comic and like these snippets of fake comic and we originally thought because he has like he's got like a whole rogues gallery he created like 12 or so villains like 20 or so fake issues mm-hmm. um a beginning a middle and end to the character in like real comic pages that he drew pretending like they were part of like bigger arcs and sagas and it, it, it's beautiful and honestly it's it's a comic that i would recommend like the the art of Felix john it's like if you have any interest in like colonialism or like yeah i think how the end of the colonial era affected art making around the world. It's such an interesting read. I come back to it a lot. And it won like three Eisners. Um, it was one of the first Singaporean projects ever to get international recognition. But because it was critical of our country's like um, state narrative, it never really got full recognition here. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those really sad things where like it's probably better known in America than it is like in our tiny country, which is so. It's one of the things uh, that we think about a lot. <laughs> All right. So, okay. Now that I have further clarification, I know wh- how I want to ask my question. So, since you're in the business now in the business of like making video games, you're learning more about that. You're coding the thing. You like have these new connections and such. Is that something that you'd want to do under Andas Productions, like where you do multimedia projects, where, say for instance, like you make a video game that is based off of the audio drama you're making, or vice versa? Heck yeah. Um, I think the thing with Andas is that um, I think at the heart of it, like, one thing I want to affirm, like, so my dying breath is that, like, audio audio is not a stepping stone genre, or not a stepping stone medium. It is a full medium itself, and we love that for it. And I think, like, because of that love, we'll never stop doing audio. I think it's, it's, it's also kind of a matter of, like, um, well, part of it, um, part of it is the same love that led us to start saying, like, hey, let's make audio dramas. Like, we're sort of just pursuing that further. The other thing that we really love is video games. And, yeah, it, it felt right. Um, and I think the other thing 
and that is a little bit like it's still important is that um, games do provide a more consistent revenue stream uh, than audio dramas. I mean, even indie games that have sort of a one-off price tag, which we're hoping to do. I don't think in-app purchases or anything like that is, is enticing at all. Um, <laughs> you know, like even that um, is the kind of thing where it might end up helping us make more audio drama. Is kind of what we're thinking. It's finding the right balance of um, video games um, and game revenue that allow us to sort of portion off bits of that income into continued passion audio projects and finding ways to sort of build stories in that multimedia way that you're talking about. That, that That's something that we've talked about as being really exciting. That said, I don't think we're going to move into anything spectacularly like diverse outside of that, just in terms of, I don't think we're going to start seeing enough animated series necessarily. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I think that there, there must be a limit, and I think for now we've decided that that limit is um, uh, audio and movies. I'm oh, sorry, audio and games. But um, I do want to note, as a last thought on this, that um, this is actually decently common in Japan. So if you look at, like, I think Grasshopper Studios, um, Hideo Kojima even, like, um, Hideo Kojima has done a whole bunch of audio and games. Um, a lot of sort of, I don't want to say indie, but a lot of, no, a lot of independent um, creative companies in Japan that do games also do a whole bunch of audio. And that's the only other country where I could find a real precedent for it. Mm-hmm. But I, I find that really compelling because, like, I think there's a reason that a lot of the times, um, oh, near as well. Um, I think there were near audio dramas. Yeah. It's just totally normal there, and I think the reason for that is um, it, it captures the same digital accessibility by way of like the audience member being able to find it, and you being able to directly give this thing to the consumer. Both audio and games have that immediacy to them in terms of like distribution and interaction. That like with TV and with movies and even with like web series, there's a lot more kind of middle management that becomes really, really important in determining uh, the thing. Yeah, I think audio and games feels right in sort of enabling this continued organic and direct creative process. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to pivot again uh, for this Please. question because I'm just genuinely curious. So when I'm doing research on you and the company, I saw that you guys hold audio fiction workshops for Singaporean students. And I wanted to know, like, what led you to make this a part of your work as a production company? And, like, how are you building curriculums for that? And, like, what does that mean for you personally? Hmm. That's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's such a kind, it's kind that, sorry, I'll need to rephrase. I'll need to think about the exact thing I'm trying to say with that. Um, but I'll leave it for now. That's very kind, um, that question. Okay, yeah, um, teaching is a fundamental part of who I am and what I do. And I was a teacher before I was a creative. And I've always maintained that if everything else goes horribly wrong and I end up like an English teacher at the age of 45 with no creative work to my name, I would still be so happy. I love it. I love it so much. It's, it's something that brings me a lot of joy. I think I see a lot of teaching in the creative process as well, just sort of like the the idea of constructive kindness. We, we all agree kindness is a virtue. 
But kindness has to be directed and it has to be used effectively to manifest into something real, right? Otherwise, it's just a feeling. You know, you can be kind and not present. <laughs> um, kind in a cave. So I think with teaching, it really forces you to meld those two things together, where, like, yes, you care for the students, but also, like, the sternness in teaching comes from you trying to think through very logically how to translate that care into effective progress for that student. To understand their goals and to help them get there um, is the same art fundamentally as directing, and I think in some ways as producing. That same negotiation, um, you know, whether it's like a stakeholder or like a sixth grade student in front of you, I feel like there has to be that same respect where like there is a human being in front of me with goals and aspirations and they're looking to me as a professional providing a service and you have to make decisions in the next five to ten seconds how to conduct yourself with them and how to make sure they feel heard so that you can get on this journey and you can help them. You know, like I think the moment you've cracked that as a teacher um, I do feel like you've understood something very important that will help you in the rehearsal room. You know? Because, like, we all feel, like, lost and scared, and, like, there's a million things we don't know. And I feel very, very drawn to the idea of, like, being of valuable service in times and moments like that. And I have found so much satisfaction. So, so, so the things, like, um... Not to directly answer your question again, like when we realized that we had this skill in audio drama, though I'd rather say craft, because I think it's more incidental that we happen to be one of the first people in our region to devote ourselves seriously to it. And I think what was quite striking to us is that it didn't feel like this was a unique thing to us, that only we could have done, far from it. If anything, it felt a bit like there was something so exciting in audio that if more people knew about it, um, especially from a region where people feel like their voices are being silenced, I can't even get into that in the breadth of this interview, but there's certainly a perceived feeling of like censorship. Um, mm -hmm. It's huge. And when you feel like you could be censored for saying anything, you end up not saying anything, and the censorship becomes immaterial and ever-present. Like It becomes like this ghostly cloud. And I think... The beautiful thing with audio drama is we just sidestep all of that. We just release stuff. And I remember, I remember feeling like if more people in Singapore, in our position, knew that that was an option, then maybe people would start feeling hope. There was a sense of urgency to like, there could be something really exciting in spreading the word. And I think kids and students are always going to be the most, like, most exciting people to reach. Um, because they're at an age where, like, um, they can really form these lifelong sort of obsessions and experiments and play and fun. You don't have to evangelize them to leave their jobs or leave their careers. You just have to say, understand that this thing is within your power. I think that's kind of what Andas as audio instructors has been. It's like, um, uh, we come in to these workshops where we assume zero interest or knowledge. Sometimes they often. Uh, the most recent one that we did, 
they all opted in for an audio workshop. And I was surprised. Like, I came into a workshop with Singaporean students who had already listened to Wolf 359, The Black Tape. Like, oh my god. Like, I was really shocked. It, it was so heartening. So yeah, so it's like, if they like this stuff already, by all means, they should know they can make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mission statement is for them to leave feeling like they know everything that they would have to do uh, to make an audio drama, uh, even using free tools. So that's one thing we do is like we we walk them down like the, if right now you want to make an audio drama, like uh, here's how you use GarageBand, here's how powerful your phone mics actually are, here's how you find the right recording environments. Here are great free sound libraries that you can use. And then we just sort of spend a little bit of time talking about where you would spend money if you had money um, and what we would recommend for that. But like, I think selling that, like, if you really want to make something, you don't need the money right away. That has been really, really cool. I've actually listened now to like two audio dramas that have come out from Singapore. They're independent. I don't know that any of them were like released off of anywhere other than SoundCloud yet, but I know that more people are doing it. And I know that like, like people have reached out to Andas saying that they've started working on audio dramas. Like I think a couple of people just let us know that they were applying for funding from the government to make an audio drama. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's been so cool. We're trying to like be everybody's hype person. Mm-hmm. And just like if you want to do audio dramas, um, we will be there with you. We will help you get it made. And like we we initially thought we might be like consultants in like a paid capacity. I think it's really turned into more of a hype. Like where we do have meetings with them, we do give advice, but it hasn't there hasn't been a right opportunity yet where we've been like, yeah, we want to charge you for our services here. Building up other people has felt like a more worthy cause. Like the money, I'm sure will come. I think we're we're pretty secure in that. And like you're you're clearly building up like the next set of Singaporean audio drama artists under you, and I think that's really important. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, we're coming around to like the kind of end of the interview. So I just have a question that I want to ask because Temujin like received a lot of critical praise. It came out in if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, January of 2020, and by like the end of, by the end of 2020, it had uh, a no- it was a nominee for best podcast at, at the 25th annual Webby Awards. Uh, it won best drama producer for the Audio UK Audio Production Awards. Uh, and the Asian Podcast Awards are kind of swept with Best Fiction, uh, Bronze for Best Narrative. Yeah. You were there. You know what you won. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel, sorry, but it, in all honesty, yeah. Um, I will just briefly say that, like, there was also, like, a period of three to four months after we released Temujin where nothing happened. And mm-hmm. I think there was a moment where we really thought that was it for the show. And we were happy. Um, and everything changed from the radio drama revival uh, feature hit, and our listener count exploded after that. But I think when I say that, like, all like the success was a surprise, I really mean like the show petered out to like one to zero listens per day over a period of like a month, and I was still happy with it. It, it, it was a surprise when it came back to life. Okay, well that's interesting because my question was when you have something that is so celebrated, like especially since there was a lull where like nothing really happened and you guys were so happy about it. And then like, it just sort of took off like a shot. Is there any, like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, is there any sort of pressure when it comes to formulating your next projects, so, like in your expectations of what you expect that next project to do? Yes, there is pressure. Um, I think the way that we've kind of 
I'll show you the way that I've imagined it. Um, right now, Timogen is kind of like, it's a marker there on the wall. And I think the next one or two things we do, it's not even just about quality. I think it's about like um, a mission statement, right? Like um, people will start seeing similarities or I guess they'll, they'll like we're all pattern seeking people. You know, we'll look for what is common in our second and third project and what Temujin wants. And Temujin will be the first thing in that series. And we do want to be intentional about what, what that series is and what that feeling is because we, to be very honest, one thing that we've been, I don't want to say struggling with, it's been an interesting effect, uh, has been Asian-ness and grappling with that, where um, one thing that happened was we had the chance to speak to people, I guess, um, after Temujin, talking about like, what are we interested in doing? Film and TV rights, or like writing things. As exciting as all that stuff was, we started getting a lot of people saying like, um, oh, you know, if anything in Asia crops up, we'll let you know. Or if we're doing any shows in Asia, we'll let you know. And every time we sort of tried to ask, like, just for the sake of entertaining it, like, what, what if you weren't doing a show in Asia? Uh, would you still consider us? Uh, we started getting a lot of like, well, you know, like, um, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I think there was this sort of increasing feeling that like um, part of our value was tied up in the otherness of our operation. One thing that we're thinking a lot about is how to how to sort of tap into the quote-unquote universal aspect of it. Because we want everything that we want to achieve as storytellers and in sort of leaning on our background, maybe it's having our cake and eating it too, but like we don't want to be typecast either. Because intimate, engaging, awe-inspiring, um, I think Asian shouldn't have to be the fourth necessary qualifier on that. You know, like I think just in the way that like you don't have to qualify American when we talk about so much of what we consume, mm. you know, but I, I do wonder, I, I wonder how we can, that's part of the reason we're doing fantasy is why I'm looking at fantastical spaces as well, just in terms of um, there's so much, so much of what we do is negotiating with politics that we wish we didn't have to negotiate with. But that are just like colonialism. You know, neo-colonialism is real. It stinks, and we need an answer. And I think our answer will come in terms of how people perceive projects two and three and four. And by that point, we will have either doubled down on Asianness, quote unquote, as a badge of honor, or trying to prove that. We don't have to be seen as Asian for the stories to be considered worth anyone's attention. Um, I don't know yet which of the two it is. I mean, it's a very... I wish... Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> That's about it. Oh, yeah. I was going to say it's like a very fraught yeah. kind of decision because, I mean, there's just, like you said, neocolonialism is real and unlike the current sort of environment and entertainment environment that we're in, like selling people based... Not selling people. Yikes. That's a loaded term. Mm. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. But it's market, all good. marketing people based yeah. upon uh, some of the, like the defining factors or like their their current representation in the sphere is 
it's a like you said it's a complex topic it's a complex thing all right so i'm gonna roll to like my second to second to last question third to last question yeah. those numbers that add up. so with all of that right i, I just kind of want to know like how do you de- define success when it comes to your art because the outside might say oh it's the awards or it's the money or it's the opportunities you get next but i want to know like how do you think how do you define your own success through the context of your art I have an answer to that question now. Um, I, my immediate goal is to, <laughs> it's really through my producer hat. I have no doubt in my mind about our process or the ability of this, this fairly large team to create wonderful things together. But I, we kind of have to save everybody from capitalism first, insofar as um, everybody needs to have consistent wage from us. Everybody needs to be able to look at what we do as a reliable source of income. And I think the moment that we've achieved that, where like there is a sustainable, where, where Andas production work is a sustainable living, I think is when I'll feel like we've done it because until, until then, um, you know, we're going to keep making all this stuff that I already believe in and that I already couldn't be prouder of. That's a huge thing for me, a living wage. Yeah. All right. Okay. So then this is my second to last question. What are you listening to? Yeah. Cause you know, I think one good turn deserves another. So uh, what productions (laughs) or audio dramas are you listening to that you would like to shout out at this moment? Beautiful. It's true that I've been listening to Valence still, but I can't shout out every... I, I've been giving Valence too much. <laughs> Even they would feel like I need to. Um, I will say that I, I, I've been catching up on Rogue Runners every single hour that I haven't been working. What a treat. It's a really... Okay, so I would say like Rogue Runners, my, my sell of it, of it would be this. Um, if you've played Hades, which it's based off of... Um, then what you get is sort of this loving extension of a world that's only hinted at through the game, uh, which is joyously evocative in its storytelling, if not detailed outright. Because what this what this show does beautifully. So if you haven't played Hades, um, you get the sense that you're dropped into this world of immense depth, but also which is perfectly clear in the most basic sense of what everybody wants, what the rules of the land are, all that so clear from the get-go. It just feels like it's the work of years and years and years and years of thoughtful, careful, and like caring world-building, which it absolutely is. I don't know how the creative team for Rogue Runners was able to so effortlessly extend the game. The way that they have, much less extend it without it at all feeling intimidating. You know, one step further, like it feels so accessible. Um, so yeah, it, it, I've been I've been swept away um, by that show recently. If I could do an honorable mention, I would also say that like um, Chain of Being. I want to say Chain of Being, um, just because I re-listened to Chain of Being uh, recently and. I think we were talking earlier about speculative fiction 
that feels at once true to lived experiences while feeling like it's totally own thing. Um, the blend of mysticism and hard sci-fi in that show, just as a world-building exercise, never fails to fill me with awe because it's so specific um, you know, to, its, to its creator, who's, as an aside, whose name, uh, C-A-I, I, I don't, I've never had to pronounce out loud. Kai? <laughs> um, I'm not going to risk it. Okay. Kai. Um, but Chain of Being is just like such a, such an, a, uh, such a specific, unique, one of a kind listening experience that cinematic um, and thoughtful. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I look forward to adding them to my list and listening. Thank you for that. Sweet. No sweat. <laughs> Uh, okay, so now thank you, Jay. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah. now we've come to like the last question. I think you might have already answered it, but I'll ask it again. So, Rashawn, you're doing really, really cool stuff, and I'm really excited for you because you sound like you're doing again, like really cool stuff. You're making all this great art. You and Isabella like have this like production company, which is like doing cool things for like Singaporean students and kids, and like. You're just like, I mean, you're just doing cool stuff. You have a great company and like your future really is. Which way? So I, I, I just want to know, how will you know when you've made it? Hmm. Let me think about that. All right. Um, I think there's a very specific moment that I long for. Um, this is the moment where... The Andas team is in the office. Our, our like fourth or fifth major project is out. We don't know how it was received yet. We're hanging around the office. We've ordered snacks. And someone starts jokingly floating ideas for the next thing. And we just wallow in that, full of pride for what we just did. And then also like, I wonder what's next. You know, like that that moment where all of this feels so, where it feels, um, there's an air of, I want to say certainty, but when we find our groove to the point where it no longer feels like, will there be a next one, but like, idly thinking, yeah, you know, like, there's something coming next. Mm-hmm. We're all on board for it. We don't have to worry about like living month to month. And all we have to do is bask in being done with one thing and and just daydreaming about the next thing. Together eating snacks late at night in the in the office that we will eventually have, I hope. <laughs> um yeah, that's that's the image for me. Alright. Well I hope yeah. that image I hope that image becomes flesh. I I hope so. Thank right. you. <laughs> okay, so Thank you. can you tell the people where they can find you and Andas, uh, Andas Productions? Yeah, of course. We have a website for Temujin, uh, which is www.temujindrama.com. Uh, we're still working on the Andas Productions website, so stay tuned for that. Uh, you can follow us, I think we're Andas Media on Twitter. And our personal Twitters, me and Isabella, are also linked on that. Thank you for listening to episode 5 of On Their Way Season 3. On Their Way was created, hosted, and edited by me, Jade Madison Scott. 
The theme was composed by Bajo Alvarado, the recap music was composed by me, and the logo was created by Amaka Corey. If you'd like to help us continue to make podcasts like On The Way or our other show, Retribution, you can support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. In addition to helping us pay for crew and overhead, you'd also gain early access to episodes and exclusive content. You can find the link at our website, wgcproductions.com. You can also show us some love by following us at What's Good Co on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and telling your friends about us. Next week, we'll be talking to Experience J, a podcast creator, and the mind behind Black Audio Dramas Exist. As always, I appreciate you for listening, and please take care of yourselves and each other.